there's two different walks. We talk about the warrior walk and the wisdom walk. And the warrior walk is the on the ground, the messy kind of doing our own healing work. And what we found is white people avoid the warrior walk because you're told in this culture you're supposed to be perfect. And so you don't want to get in the messy, the mess and the dirt and the, you know, for the own healing. You want to jump straight to the wisdom walk and claim the knowing without earning it. And it's opposite for people of color. So the warrior walk, this being willing to, that's where the healing happens. Being willing to go in the mud and the dirt and be seen as not being perfect. Being seen as being a hot mess is only how you can get the gold from the wound of the experience. So what in this message of white people are supposed to be perfect and trying to keep that appearance, trying not to be seen as not being perfect, which I think is connected to your question, Shana, too, about the judgment. It's wanting to wanting to claim the wisdom without doing the warrior walk. For people of color, it's just the opposite. We're told in this culture, you'll never be perfect. And so what we do actually is we cling to the warrior walk. We cling to the fight and don't always claim the wisdom that we've gotten from being in the mess. And so we actually have the medicine for each other. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shana Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Today, we have a very real and raw, deep and beautiful conversation with you. And before we get started, I would love to introduce our new sponsor, goddesswell.co. Goddesswell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self specifically formulated by women, for women, to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support, and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule. So there's various lines. There's the harmony line for harmony and mood. There's the radiance line for PMS and menopause relief. There's the serenity line for UTI relief. And each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the Harmony pill for mood and 
hormone aid. And I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils. And I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey. And I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. So what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood, is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself, and she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves, and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code sisterhood and buy one and get one free to give to a friend. All right, now let's get going with the show. Hello and welcome back, my beautiful friends, to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Today, Shayna and I are here with the legendary, damn Juanita, <laughs> Juanita Robertson, who is the very first interview that we had on this podcast. She aired, I believe, third, but she was our actual first recording. And we met her through Sarah Drew. And she spoke on a panel that we had for International Women's Day in 2021 called The Medicine of the Feminine. And Juanita brings the medicine of reconciliation and forgiveness on such a deep, profound level. She is a consultant, a storyteller, a shaman, a coach, a leader, someone who initiates uninitiated adults into what it really means to be an adult, mature, stewarding this planet awake and caring for others. She's um, become a, a dear mentor of Shana and I. And I am so blessed to have her be the officiant of my wedding coming here in May. And I can't wait. It's my birthday weekend. It's your birthday weekend and my wedding weekend. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about Juanita as a black-bodied woman is that she has had this mission of, of really helping white-bodied people understand the true meaning of social justice, the liberation and the healing of the inner division inside of ourselves, and as well as all bodies of color. Juanita has been a steward and a teacher of how we can truly move into a new time, changing the yardstick. So we're going to talk about her book today called The Inner Ground Railroad, A 40-Day Journey to Remembering Soul and Spirit. And I'm just going to read something that she wrote, which is at the back of the book. In the U.S., we are all swimming in the waters of what is right, real, and true as white and male. Because of Western globalization, these beliefs have spilled over to the rest of our world, forming a yardstick by which we measure everything. Change our beliefs changes the yardstick. Changing the yardstick 
changes the world. In this book, Amy and I share our individual journeys of our shared bondage and freedom from the stories and then walk you through your own. So without further ado, be prepared for a few dams along the way. We welcome you, Juanita, to the podcast once more. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be back here with the two of you and to be talking about this book and um, kind of my journey now, I guess. Lauren and I had had a conversation about this particular book, The Underground Railroad, and how I've been in relationship with this book in some way, shape, or form for the past 17 years. Not always happy about that, just like some relationships that we have in our life, but making peace with what does it mean for me to reconcile my own relationship with this book and this body of work that I feel called into and that I feel is part of what I've promised to do this lifetime here. So thank you for inviting me again. So let's talk about the Interground Railroad and just the meaning of that phrase. Yeah, so the book first started off, it had a different title a long time ago when I first started writing it. I thought it was the African-American Spirit Healing book. And it was one night, I was in school, I was in my master's program, which my master's is in organizational development with a concentration in integral theory. So it's how do you look at things in a more holistic way. And what happened that particular night is I just got the download of the whole layout of the book. It just came. And at that point, though, I didn't know enough to write it. (laughs) So I had the title of like each of the sections and what it wanted, you know, to have in it. And at that time, it didn't include my stories, actually. It just included the 40-day journey. And so I laid it out, wrote it up. I was up most of the night, and then I stuck it in a drawer. (laughs) Because again, like I said, I didn't have what I needed yet to write it. And I often find spirit does that for us. Spirit will give us something that and put something on our heart and on our spirit that we don't quite know how to do it yet. We don't know how we're going to get from where we're at in that moment to who we need to be when it's time to complete what it is that we're called to. So sometimes it gets stuck in a drawer for a while until we get prepared. The book itself and the idea of it was that how do we heal this ancestor legacy of slavery? And my integral theory program that I was in, the model itself Um, The model we used in this particular program was rooted in Ken Wilber's work. But I found that model to, even though it's supposed to include all these different methodologies, I found it as a very masculine model. And so I was doing work at that time with the Dagra Medicine Wheel from West Africa and Burkina Faso. And I thought, what would it be if I overlaid that medicine wheel with this model? Because then what it does is it takes us through the doorway and ancient medicine. And I could have used any medicine wheel, but because at that time I was writing it for my African-American brothers and sisters, even though from the very beginning I was clear it was for everyone. You know, we can come through lots of different doorways. And so I wrote the layout of it and it stayed in the drawer until several years later when I was on the board of a retreat center and I called Christina Baldwin of the Circle Way and said I wanted her to come and do a circle retreat at that retreat center. And she said to me, well, let me tell you what you need to do. 
<laughs> you need to come and experience me in retreat and then we'll do something together. And so the retreat she had coming up was titled Self is the Source of the Story. And so she's like, you have to bring a piece of writing. So I pulled the piece out of the drawer <laughs> because I needed something to take. And that's what I took into that writing retreat. And what I remember feeling going into it is I didn't feel very much like a writer going in. And when I left a retreat, I felt like a writer. And I remember she said to me, this is your work to do. And if you don't do it, somebody else will pick it up and carry it on. And they'll make choices that you'll regret for the rest of your life. <laughs> she said, And she says, um, so go home and write like heaven. And so that was the next, that was the moving forward with it. And the name itself, Interground Railroad, <clears throat> what does that symbolize? So there's a wonderful woman, Nalima, who I met in India years ago. And we were on a conversation. We were talking as we have been known to do from, period, from here to there. And we were talking about the book. And she says, well, what if there's another, what if the name is the, the Underground Railroad? And I said, no, like that's, it's done too much. Like that's not, it's not the Underground Railroad. And she's, and I think she was the one that said, what about the inner ground? And I just knew immediately that's it. That was it. And when she said it, it was, I thought the rest of it was a journey to remembering self and spirit. But as we were going through the book more and more, I got it was soul and spirit. Because I think that one of the things about this healing journey that we don't hear a whole bunch about is that this is a spiritual walk. It's not just an emotional one. And I talk a little bit about the difference between spirit and soul in those journeys. Bill Plotkin talks about in his book, Soulcraft, the piece that the ascending journey to spirit, the, the place where, we where the collective we lives, it's an ascending journey. It's a masculine journey. That's why we have more ministers and priests that are men than women. <laughs> and the descending journey to soul, the descent, is a feminine journey. That's why we have more witches than warlocks. And I just love that idea that it's the soul's journey and the spirit's journey. Because so often I think we speak about them as if they're the same. And so to have this show up, and I think that when we talked the last time, I talked a little bit about this because what came through me then in a dream was the other part of that, like the ascending journey to soul being a masculine journey, that's in the spirit walk and the descending journey to spirit being a feminine journey, that's in, that's in the, you know, that's in the spirit walk as well. But on the earthly walk, it's just the opposite. So what means that the ascending journey that holds the collective we is on the, for the masculine is held in the spirit, but in the earthly walk, the collective we is held by the feminine. Mm. And so on, you know, and then the, uh, the other place. So in the descending journey, the, the individual I is held in the feminine, but in the earthly walk, it's held in the collect, um, it's held in the collective we. And so it's a way that it, we get the balance of masculine and feminine and heaven and earth. 
And I'll say one more layer, because I think this is important for this book. This book is an initiatory book. And so the, the other layer that I'll, I'll put in that is that we can block initiation at both places. So the ascending journey to spirit that is mostly a masculine journey, that doesn't mean, again, we can be men or women who are in that place, but in the masculine, it's held. If there's not a good balance with the feminine, we'll block initiation, we'll block the descent. And then in the descent, in the feminine, when we're going into the descent for our initiation, if there's not a good balance with the masculine, which I think often shows up as elders, because we think we can do this alone, we'll block the descent. Mm. You know, And so that's why there's a need to get this balance so that we can grow up and step into our own our own actualization, you know, that then our stories really move from what's right, real, and true is white and male to what you, your individual yardstick is. And I think that is the growing up. So I want to ask you about, you know, the the meaning of the book and kind of how you got there. Because I read an excerpt online that was talking about, you know, how you're sharing in this book that we all have slavery somewhere in our lineages. And so this book is about working in the inner realm to connect to those parts of us that are somehow enslaving. And so I find it so interesting and most likely true. This is not an exploration I've fully gone on myself, but you know, you can't slave another unless you're slaving, enslaving yourself. And so can we can we get into that? Because I find yeah. this work to be extremely profound. And yeah, I want you to explain more about this. Yeah. Um, first, I'll start with saying that all of this work, the assumption that I make, <laughs> one of the assumptions that I make in this work is that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, not the other way around. We're not human beings that sometimes have spiritual experiences. And I say that because that changes everything then everything that happens is in service to the spiritual beings, to us growing as spirits. That means that nothing is accidental. The universe is exact. It sends us exactly what our souls need to move to the next layer. And if you're holding that as an assumption, you ask different questions. So you ask the question, instead of why is this happening to me, you ask why is this happening for me? You ask the question when someone shows up, like, instead of assuming we get to choose automatically who we are to each other, it's this discovery of listening to learn, like, who did we promise to be here with each other? It changes everything. So I think that in this book, part of this whole idea of the slave archetype is, you know, I'm a descendant of slaves. I'm a descendant of my ancestors, some of them took part in the Underground Railroad. And so, you know, I, I'm i still in the family business, I think I write at some point, like, like I'm still trying to get us to freedom because freedom isn't just physical. It's a, a matter of fact, the biggest part of slavery was emotional and spiritual. That's how you could enslave so many people on a property and have such few people overseeing them is because once you win the spirit and the and the soul, you've got them. And so this piece was about how, what does the slave archetype have for us? If it's purposeful, 
what is its purpose? And when you look at archetypes, one of the things I love about archetypes is they're not negative or positive. They're actually quite neutral and they just have a light and a shadow. And the shadow side of the slave archetype is being a slave to a person, a thing, or even an idea. The light side of the slave archetype is being a slave to the divine spirit within. It actually teaches us self-mastery. It's how we find our freedom. And so I think that, you know, in every lineage, there's been this ancestry of enslavement in some way, shape, or form. We all carry it in us. And so what is the purpose of that archetype? Its purpose is to help us find our freedom. One of the biggest misconceptions I think we have here and in the U.S., I'm thinking, but but I think it's broader than that. I think it's global, and I think it comes from colonialism, is we have this belief that the legacy of slavery just affects those who were enslaved. Matter of fact, you know, it's common. People know about the book Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome that talks about, um, as people of color, healing that ancestral legacy. What we don't talk about is... What was the, what conditions have to be present to enslave another? If we really get that we're connected, I can only deny your humanity when I can't see my own. And so the question then is, how do we each heal what enslaves us? Because I can't give what I don't have. So if I haven't healed the piece in me that's enslaved, I can't see where you are enslaved. And so even this whole conversation around being my ally, I keep telling people, I don't want you to be my ally. I want you to save your own damn self. Like, you know, if you save you and we are connected, I am better off. It's easier than for me to take my journey. I don't need, um, I don't need you to free me that I'm a co-creator for everything that shows up in my life with the divine. And that's not dependent on you. At what stage in your life, making the assumption that as a woman on earth and as a black woman on earth, you likely experienced a good amount of trauma, as many of us do, at what point in your journey of healing that trauma did you realize that you are the co-creator, that this didn't happen to you, it's happening for you? At what point? Because that feels like a a place that a lot of people struggle to get to. I'm so curious about that shift in consciousness for you. Well, I think the easy, quick answer first is (laughs) that it's still happening, that at different layers, you know, that I would say, if you're done, you're dead, and maybe not even then, right? Because we're talking about the soul's journey. But I started my own healing journey at about, 14, 15. Now, that doesn't mean that I knew that then. But I think what happens is as we start on these journeys, we're sent, again, what we need in that exact moment. So people would show up that I needed for the lesson in that moment. One of my elders, the question of why is this happening for me instead of to me, came from one of my elders, Jojo Pomeria. But I think there was moments where I could see, because of the experience I had, I was able to help someone else or be there for someone else. 
there's people showed up for me and I called them. There's a book that's coming out soon about the sexual violence and spiritual healing. And I wrote a chapter in it. And one of the things I talk about is these earth angels that have shown up for me. And these earth angels aren't part of like our documented systems that we have, that you send a person here and you send a person there. They're actually people who showed up what might seem by accident. But I don't, I, I think it was purposeful. They each had a piece for me, whether it was that they could see me and didn't really require anything else from me. Or they had a piece of the puzzle that I needed for the next walk. But that awakening to it's me and the divine, I think some of where it came from is I was raised around a lot of churches, and I would say mostly Christian. But my grandfather, my mother's father, was the pastor of a holiness church. And I went to church mostly growing up to his his church service, which was uh, non-denominational. Even though my mother didn't go, I would go with my grandfather. And my other set of grandparents, my stepfather's parents, were very Catholic. So when I was at that grandmother's house, I would do the rosary at night. <laughs> and I um, went to Catholic summer camps where my best friend was from and during that time and, and even helped her w- work bingo at her church because that's how they paid for her Catholic ed- education. <laughs> You know, so I had, um, and for a, w- a while, lived with a, a family from the um, Universal Unitarian Church, too. So I've had all these different spiritual connections growing up. So I don't know if I ever doubted the divine, which is even when I felt I was in big trouble and was mad as hell about what I was going through. You know, I even remember myself saying to spirit once, if this is who you are, I don't want to have anything to do with you. But even that requires faith and belief that there's something there I'm still in relationship with, right? Like, so that's rooted in me that there's something bigger than just us here that holds the all of us. And for me, it represents love. It hasn't always, like I said, me feeling like what, you know, I don't want to be a part of this. But there was a year that I was when I was actually getting divorced, that I was really angry with the divine. And I remember uh, hearing this voice that was like, surrender. And I said, no. And the voice said, surrender. And I said, you left me. And the voice said, I didn't leave you. It just didn't look the way you thought it should. And this realization, like, we think we know what it's supposed to look like, but you can't, you can't understand life looking forward. You can only understand it looking back. And so, you know, in a culture though, that tells us we're supposed to know, we misunderstand. We think that like, if I don't know something's wrong with me, instead of no, our job is to surrender to the not knowing and know that we're held and protected and carried along the way. I'm curious, Juanita, about the journey you're taking people on in the 40 days. And if that requires a connection to this divine source, because it feels like it's going to be a lot of descent and surrender, you know, and at moments maybe it's terrifying to really face these deep truths within oneself. So I'm curious about uh, how you kind of 
orchestrate that work so someone can actually trust to let go in that? Yeah, one thing is I tell people don't take the journey alone. You know, do it with someone. And it may take more than 40 days. The book is kind of designed or set up in two different sections. The first section of it is Amy and I sharing our stories around the different elements of the medicine wheel. So we share our fire story, our water story, our nature, mineral, and earth stories. And then the 40 days actually walks you through a week of each element. So the first three days is, is prep work. So getting your own intentions for your journey, for body, which is the egocentric self, mind, which is the ethnocentric self, and spirit, which is the world-centric or the spirit, the, the whole of it all self. And so you set your intentions because I believe that that matters, that way that the journey can kind of fold around you instead of you folding into it. And then you do a week of fire, a week of water. We take you through each of the elements. And there's setting up altar for the first day of each element. And then there's ritual at the last day of each element. And the thing I love about ritual and inviting in the ancestors to help is you don't even have to believe it for it to work. Doing it is your faith gesture. And so I think, yes, it's challenging. I think that that's why it might take more than 40 days for people. I, um, it definitely, the journey took more than 40 days for me. And I think it's a journey that you can do over and over and over again, that the exercises are set up to help you go deeper and deeper into the different elements from first, second, and third person perspective. So that's even thought out. Like, how do you heal the eye of the fire element, what's internal to you? How do you heal the collective we of the fire element? You know, that cultural aspect of how we, how we're being. How do you heal the it part is the behavioral piece of that element. And how do you heal the it's part, the, the systems that we have been a part of, of that particular element? So the questions and the activities are purposely chosen to walk you through that journey. I'll read something that, that I think is, speaks to the journey. There was a, there's a woman, a friend of mine, who her name was Timmy Singley, or Timberly Singley. And she wrote this piece for me, actually for another retreat that I was going to do. And it was one of those things that sat in the files for years. <laughs> and then when this book came, I realized, oh, no, this is for this. And so the poem that she wrote is called The Cloak of Wounds. And it says, I have been wearing this cloak of wounds, this veil of pain and suffering, passed down from mother to daughter, from sister to brother, from father to son, from grandparent to grandchild. It is the cloak of an ancestral past sewn carelessly with wounding words and hints of hurts, stitched half-heartedly with loss and anguish, desperation and rage, tirelessly trimmed with guilt and fear. Today, I remove this cloak of wounds, offering this cloak to the water to be washed clean of its fragmented flesh and bloodied bands, offering this cloak to the wind to be blown free of lack and limitations and the ancient dust of illusions, offering this cloak to the fire to be smoked and burned as angered abuse rise to the sky and become the ashes of the past, offering this cloak to the earth to be buried with all of the isolation and despair of my people. 
On this day, I take needle in hand and begin to stitch a new ancestral cloak, a royal robe of power and peace, of undying hope and deep faith. Today, I reach back in time and wind threads of hard-fought freedom with the hand-spun fibers of grace and love. Today, I weave together inspiration, innovation, and imagination with community and cooperation, intermingling wide bands of compassion with golden strands of forgiveness. It is this new ancestral cloak that I will wear from this day forward and pass to my grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren. Today, I will don the new cloak so that our hearts will be healed, so our minds may be cleared as we dance in the shelter of our faith, so my people will be restored, held only by the soul of spirit. I think I've heard you read that poem before. Yeah. That's the journey. The journey is we live in this culture of such adolescent adults. How do we grow up? We can only grow up through our own healing. And I think it's so hard. And I think the reason we resist it is because we're so afraid of the grief that has to come. We're so afraid because the grief, the water, is the only thing that really transforms it. It washes away what was there before to make room for that which we say we want. This past week, I had the opportunity to do a cleanse. And that just meant simplifying my diet a lot, eating very simply, not having any caffeine. And it brought up the grief. It brought up a lot of the grief, a lot of the anger, you know, which we've talked about before, sits on top of the grief. And as you speak that, I feel the grief like welling up inside. And this grief is healing me. I feel that. Letting my tears flow in what I thought the week prior was a desert. You know, I was like, I'm not in touch with my grief. I just feel fire and I feel dry. And now I feel different. But it's so interesting how we're consuming so much, whether it's food, whether it's media, whether it's listening to people, you know, that we don't actually get to be with what's there, which is a lot of grief, a lot of grief. I'm curious about how you open up that space for yourself to, to, yeah, get in touch with that place. Well, life will send you stuff (laughs) as Mm -hmm. one, if you pay attention. But I was saying to someone recently, like, I tell people often that I'm a pretty emotionally intelligent person, but I don't know if people know what I mean when I say that. And I said, what it means for me is that I've learned to let the emotions flow through me. I think we get access to our emotions as a sphere. And when we're unwilling or afraid to go into the grief, we don't get access to the joy of equal. Like emotions don't differentiate. They just, you have access or you don't, right? And so it's this piece about like, how do we open up to what's what's there? And can we just let it flow through us? And I think part of what stops us is we think that grief requires suffering, but the grief itself isn't suffering. Grief is just sad. The suffering is the resistance to the grief, right? So if we let it just flow through us, which, you know, I was going through a lot at the beginning of this year, it was about three weeks where 
I did, had to do some couch bonding and just like let the grief flow through me, right? And I said, I think because I allow the emotions to flow through, they can feel pretty big for the people around me too. So my anger can feel gr- big, my grief can feel big, my excitement can feel big. And sometimes I think in that bigness, people think that I'm out of control, which isn't what's happening at all. It's like, I'm just letting it flow through me so that when I'm done, I'm done. I don't have the residue of it lingering in me because I've taken the time and I've let myself feel what's there to be felt. One of the interesting things that I've been playing with, uh, matter of fact, I've been writing a blog post earlier today about this, and it's that I'm starting, one of my elders said to me once that the whiteness is a mental illness. And now I'll say whiteness isn't just for white people. We're all swimming in that water, right? (laughs) But the whiteness as a mental illness, I'm starting to see clearer and clearer. Because what it does is it creates a story that isn't true. Just like my friend who's schizophrenic. She gets a story that isn't true. And she's living by that story as if it is. I think the whiteness can do that same thing for us. And I've experienced it recently in the form of, you know, people in my life who it's almost like they can't see me. It's like it's happening right in the moment. And they may even seem like they hear it. But then the next moment, they don't even recall that I've said it or done it because it doesn't fit in that story. And so it's been fascinating to watch because I, I used to think it was forgetfulness or I used to think it was intentional, like leaving me out. But I don't think it is. I think they really can't see it. You know, and I know some people will say that I'm trying to give white people an out by calling it a mental illness. But I would say that, like I said, whiteness isn't just for white people. (laughs) And it doesn't just show up in white people. And we've talked about, again, this post-traumatic slave syndrome and how that affects the mental capacities. You know, so it has to, that experience, you can't go through that experience and not be affected by it, even generationally, because your ancestors then pass down to you, whether it's through the behavior or through just our very DNA. And I think it's this piece around, we're so afraid that, well, I won't even say afraid. I think we are afraid of grief, but I think we also don't know how to do it. I think we don't really get that grief requires community, that you can't grieve alone. Sabang Fusome said we were wounded in community, so the healing has to happen in community too, where we tend to want to go and hide and do our grief. But the problem with that is we'll never go all the way to the bottom of it. We have to bear witness and be witnessed with each other. And I think the other thing is we think, like I said, that piece about grief requires suffering. Instead of, no, the suffering is the resistance, it's not the grief itself. Can I just allow the grief to flow through me? And I think the third thing is we have this misconception that we we all grieve differently. And I don't think that's true. I think we all avoid grief differently. And that story gives us permission to avoid it. You know, but what does it mean to have grief and go to community? You know, there's a big thing that, has been shifting in my life that has lots of grief. And one of the communities I'm a part of is the fire and water community. And I called a, I, I called them into a call and we all came together to talk about this moment and the grief and how I was feeling and what was happening and how they're feeling 
Because when we're in community, it doesn't just affect us. And that it has a piece of it for all of us. So, you know, some of the grief for me was feeling this sense of betrayal. And so the question I, and what I said to them is, but we've all betrayed someone at some time. You know, so then the question for, for me and for them that I offered up is where have I not been trustworthy in this community? Because each person carries a piece of it for the larger community. We are not independent in this. That's part of the whiteness as well, this belief of independence. But I think that's a trauma response. I don't think it's the truth. I think we're always dependent. Thank you. Thank you, Shana, for asking that question as well. That was medicine for me. Thank you. I have two questions that are burning for me. So I'll, I'll, I'll frame the two questions and then go into the first. The first one is around healing the collective it that's within us that you talk about in the book. And I'll expand there. And the second question is around the light side of the slaver archetype, the, the being a slave to spirit as you spoke. So first I would like to just share that last night I had a dream and there was this person in my dream and I was vicious to this person. I mean, awful because there's this genuine anger. And then that person became a person of my past that betrayed me in my past. And I wasn't anger, angry anymore. I was more like shocked. I was like, oh, this is what this is. This is this, this anger. And when I sat with it this morning, it was like, okay, this viciousness, this anger, this actually feels like, yes, some of that anger is mine, but it actually seems like I'm entering into a threshold of this is beyond my own healthy range of human emotion. I'm actually feeling a collective rage, a collective viciousness. And so that's like that threshold of like, this is mine and this is when mine merges into the collective and how intense that, that can amplify that emotion. And so I want to just ask you first, before I go into the second question, how we work with the, the I and then also the we. Yeah. So I love what Robert Bly wrote in Iron John. He writes, anger is personal. Rage is archetypal. Rage is collective. And I think that unprocessed anger is grief. Or unprocessed grief shows up as anger. Unprocessed communal grief shows up as rage. And so, you know, I think, again, emotions aren't good or bad. They just are. But because we have this label on, these are good emotions or these are bad emotions or these are emotions you should have or you shouldn't have. If you're a human, you're going to have all of them. <laughs> I mean, all of it comes through. And so I think that oftentimes we don't know how to deal with, um, especially I think women with anger, because so often we treat women as we're not supposed to be angry. And sometimes even people of color with anger. I think the only people that we really allow to be angry in this culture are white men. So this piece around, can we be in the anger? 
And even, you know, one of the things I experienced recently is this anger I had toward a white man. And some of what the community responded in was like, um, me even naming it was seen as disparaging his character instead of like, no, he just pissed me off and I get to be mad and then I get to grieve it, right? Like, like we get to feel our emotions as we're working through it because that's how we let them go. And I knew underneath the anger was unprocessed grief <laughs> that I needed to wait to it to surface, right? And so part of what I do is there's certain things I don't do when I'm still in the anger piece. That's not a time to go have necessarily a heart to heart with the person because, you know, you, I don't need to dump all my pain on everybody, but we do need to be witnessed in it. So feeling the anger um, and then rage, when rage comes up, it is a communal kind of, it's like, it, it's the way I experience it is it like, it's almost like an explosion up out of me, like the rage. And I, and I think that that's important to pay attention to. There's one, um, and to know the difference, which is personal and which is rage. You know, anger has a little bit of different of a texture and for you to learn what that texture feels like in you. The other piece that I think is connected to this is I was with a friend and I may have shared this story before, but I think it's important here, is that she had just given a speech about courage and for the first time saw the word rage and the word courage and spoke that she thought every courageous act has a bit of rage in it. And so what that brought me to is that work, that piece with by Robert Bly if rage is communal, maybe courage by definition is communal as well. And so I started like walking around and things like work me. So it's working me. And three different people, three or four different people over the next couple of days there had shared with me that the beginning of courage, core, means heart, heart rage. And so a friend, Danny Deerdorf, who is no longer on the planet, but he gifted me this book by James Hillman that talks about the three different philosophies of the heart, the blood, physical heart, the essence of something, the heart of the matter, or the passionate heart that pulls you from the inside out. And what I started to wonder is what if when we choose and act courageously, what we're really doing is stepping out of a personal fear into honoring a collective truth. And by doing that, really... uh I, I wonder if that holds the essence of what it really means to be human. And I wonder if we knew that when we chose and act courageously, first of all, it wasn't just for us because we're connected, that we're honoring the whole, if that would help us to choose and act courageously more often. I think so often when we're faced with a thing that requires courage of us, we think it's just for us instead of, oh, no, we're carrying this piece and it's going to help heal all of us. So that's what, you know, I would say about tending to the difference between anger and rage. Mm, thank you. I love this conversation about the grief and about the rage because, and about the emotional intelligence of really allowing ourselves to feel our feelings because that feels like how we begin to mend the inner division between ourselves, like inside of ourselves, the part of ourselves that's enslaving a certain feeling, right? Oppressing yes. a certain human emotion and not letting it fully flow. 
Yes. And so I, I love that. And I love that about the Interground Railroad because it's definitely a belief of mine that as we heal our division inside, as we reconcile and forgive what's inside, that's how we forgive within each other, with community. And part of that journey for me and recognizing that journey for me has been my, <laughs> I, I have never used it like this, but the, the slave to spirit. And how I see it is I see it as like a devotee, just like, take me, I, I, thy will above my will. Like I truly have that yearning and not all parts of me are in line. There are parts that are resisting this still, of course, but when I'm really, truly me, all I want to do, all I want to do is be a channel of spirit. All I want to do is listen and be connected and walk in that guidance and that instruction. And I was saying this to um, my best friend, Destiny, who's staying with me right now. And I was speaking about you, actually. And I was saying, you know, what I love about Juanita is you can feel that she's listening to her instructions and she's following them. And I want to ask you just a little bit about those who are listening, um, what that means to be a slave to spirit. Okay, I'm going to tweak it just a bit because, you know, yeah. one of my elders has taught me we don't have to be a slave to anything, not even the spirit. Yeah. That, because we, spirit gives us free will. And so I don't feel enslaved to spirit. You know, the free will is choice. I'm obedient to spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's by choice. And that's different than being a slave to spirit. Because I, I've met people who are a slave to spirit, which I think they're not always recognizing the co-creation with the divine. You know, the slave archetype is about surrendering. It's, it's about being a slave to the divine spirit within. So it's yourself. It's like that part, you know, of the divine spirit that we get to touch, right? That where I think we become alive. I think that we think by surrendering, we will actually have less power, but I found it's just the opposite. I feel more in control and more grounded when I surrender to the divine, when I surrender to the not knowing. And then, then I ever think I will actually, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's always this question about like, I think I always have this idea. If I surrender, I'll feel less in, in control, but that's never how it works out. So I would say that piece about surrendering to the divine spirit within is how we step into more and more of who we are and the peace we're supposed to carry here. I want to talk about the fear of judgment because I have this come up for me as I continue to trust this like force I can surrender to inside because I've had the experience before that actually deeply traumatized me. But as I continued to surrender, I felt like people were talking about me. And it felt like the voices were becoming louder and louder the deeper I was surrendering to this force within. And once that event happened once, it happened many times. And I feel like I'm healing from that because I'm beginning to trust even if I do hear things. But I'm curious about how you've worked with 
yeah, this, this, this fear of judgment, because for me, it's, it's, it can be very freezing. I think some of that is the whiteness. You know, one of the things that Howard Thurman says in the um, Jesus and the Disinherited, he says, the first thing that, again, that you have to do to enslave a people is that they become more afraid of you than they are the divine. And so that's a piece of the enslavement. You know, I often will say these days that it's not that I'm not afraid anymore. It's that I've gotten better at knowing what to be afraid of. <laughs> you know, I'm not afraid of little shit. I'm not like somebody else doesn't get to choose, you know, my destiny or what happens in my life. And so, like, it's not about not being judged. You will be judged. And mainly because when people can't deal with that power in themselves, how on earth can they stand in it, reflect it through you? You know, and there was a piece I said once to one of my elders, because I felt like I was afraid of leaving people behind. And, you know, the dear friend that I felt like I was um, leaving him behind. And she said to me during the time, she says, you, of course you are. Of course you're leaving them behind because that's what leaders do. They go first. And so, you know, I think so much of what we've told people about this spiritual journey isn't truth. You know, I think we hold it as in you do the spiritual walk and you, your life is going to be easier instead of you do the spiritual walk and you just qualify for more trouble, right? <laughs> because you can stand in and hold more. Yeah. So for all of you listening, we double dog dare you. Double dog dare you <laughs> to be all that you are. Yes. Double dog dare myself. Double dog dare you, Shayna. And I feel hesitant to double dog dare you because I, I feel you like can you double are, dog dare me because okay. I'm in it already anyway. <laughs> okay, I double dog dare you too. Yeah. Double dog dare you. Yes. I mean, I feel like oh, I love that you asked that question, Shayna, because I feel like that right there that fear of judgment of really truly being in our divine power and our divine I am presence and in surrender to God, that is the very thing that is the kept women separate from one another, the fear that of the audacity, what if I do this, the, the judgment that other women will have of us. And I feel like that's the, in a way, the fabric of, why global sisterhood exists is so that we can actually heal that myth and really celebrate the power in another and see it as an opportunity for us to rise into that power ourselves. And I wonder how that relates between women, but I'm curious how that relates between people that are in white bodies and people of color. Yeah, I think one of the things that Amy and I discovered in this book, Amy Houghton is the co-author of this book. I don't know if I mentioned that yet. <laughs> so I want to make sure I speak that into this space. But one of the things I actually love about the book, and I didn't, I don't know if I really knew this before. The book isn't reconciliation between the two of us. It's reconciliation within each of us. And what we found in doing it, we talk about there's two different walks. We talk about the warrior walk and the wisdom walk. 
And the warrior walk is the on the ground, the messy kind of doing our own healing work. And what we found is white people avoid the warrior walk because you're told in this culture, you're supposed to be perfect. And so you don't want to get in the messy, the mess and the dirt and the, you know, for the own healing, you want to jump straight to the wisdom walk and claim the knowing without earning it. And it's opposite for people of color. I just want to, I just need to pause there (laughs) because like, I'm just thinking of social media right now and like, just, can you re-say that? I just really want to emphasize that. Yeah. So the warrior walk, this being willing to, that's where the healing happens. Being willing to go in the mud and the dirt and be seen as not being perfect. Being seen as being a hot mess is only how you can get the gold from the wound of the experience. So what in this message of white people are supposed to be perfect and trying to keep that appearance, trying not to be seen as not being perfect, which I think is connected to your question, Shana, too, about the judgment. It's wanting to wanting to claim the wisdom without doing the warrior walk. For people of color, it's just the opposite. We're told in this culture, you'll never be perfect. And so what we do actually is we cling to the warrior walk. We cling to the fight and don't always claim the wisdom that we've gotten from being in the mess. And so we actually have the medicine for each other. And so what I think is happening, you know, these days we're hearing a lot about Black girl magic and Black boy magic is that I actually think Obama and Michelle being in office helped to unlock something in people of color where they said, oh, if they can do that, I can, blank, 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 right? And so there's a claiming of the wisdom walk that's happening now. And I think there's also this piece of like, you know, more and more people, more and more white people, I think, are showing up to try to do some of their healing because there's something, again, as we're being pulled to whatever it is as the collective we're growing into, we're feeling this need to take on our stuff. I will say in the book, one of the things that I write about is at some point I had written about 17,000 words to the book and I lost it, the book. Like I, I had, we had a robo drive in our house that was backing up on two different hard drives, all the computers in our house. And my computer crashed and we went and had it wiped because we had these two hard drives. And what we found out is it was backing up every computer in the house, but mine. So the book was gone. And I was quite a mess, actually. (laughs) I was quite a mess. Like every time a a friend would ask me about starting to write again, I'd start crying. And I was just like, you know, I was like, oh, no, because I had the stories. I had written my stories, which was my warrior walk. I had written those stories in the book. And I couldn't imagine having to go back there and write those stories again. Like it felt like, it felt like spirit was asking me to go back into the dark night of the soul, right? And I was with a friend and he says to me, I guess he got tired of me belly aching this particular time. <laughs> and he says, okay, Q, or no, what age was your book written from? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, you know, so you see those books over on the counter, he says, or on the shelf. He says, some of them are written from, from the place of young adults. Some of them are written from elders, some are written from adult. What age does this book want to be written from? And I said, I think it wants to be an elder book. And he goes, okay, so what age was it written from? And I had to laugh because I said, probably adolescent adult, right? Like adolescent. 
And so I got, oh my God, it's not that it doesn't want to be written again. It just doesn't want to be written again from the same space. And so then when I wrote that, what came out of that space in the book is that that's the divine promise to us that whatever is taken away will, that the, when we say yes to our own healing journey, whatever is taken away will be replaced by equal or greater. And that the old stories will be completely taken away and replaced by new ones. And so literally that happened in the book. The old stories got taken away and now wanted to be written from the wisdom space and not the warrior space. Now, I needed the warrior walk myself. That first writing was for me. The second writing was for the book. Damn, Kwanita. <laughs> I feel like my spirit is getting a bath. <sighs> my soul. I feel, and actually, I don't know if knowing is is a real thing, but yeah, this knowing, the sense of knowing that this whiteness thing you're talking about has been deeply afflicting me. <laughs> and I feel completely called out about it and seen in it. And, you know, I was talking about I couldn't access the grief. It was because I felt a little bit depressed. Why did I feel depressed? Is because I felt stuck felt stuck. I wasn't able to access the emotions. I just was like stuck and it's like, I don't even know how to be. And so, you know, it's, I'm saying that for those of us out there that might be feeling something related to, to the spectrum, because I think it's important for us that are in this pool of whiteness and that being the yardstick to really look at where we're at so that we can, we can actually begin to do the work. Um, and so I'm grateful to Juanita for everything you shared about the warrior walk, because I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm allowing myself to be the warrior that I know I am. I know that. Mm -hmm. And it's scary. It's super scary yeah. because it's like, because I'm like, damn, Shana, like, I didn't know you had that in you, you know? Like I told Lauren the other day, I was on the phone with her and I'm like, when I feel this force coming through me, it's like, get out of the way get out of the way because it's yes. just like wow like and I can feel it now like coming down my spine it's like it's this force that wants to work through me but it's not going to work through me if I'm in the way holding it all together yeah. trying to be perfect there's a piece that Amy wrote in the book and the quote is waking up to these truths can be painful what I found more painful is our not seeing is our willful blindness the fact that we've been choosing to live all this time unawake. The truth that somehow unbeknownst to ourselves, we have assumed the position of purveyors of half-truths that in essence reduces the humanity of those we love and ourselves. And, you know, I also, a woman once said to me this piece around, like, as white people, you are born into being tools of the patriarchy. And that the biggest threat is always, if you don't stay in line, you'll be kicked out of the family, which means survival. So this brings up uh, a conversation that Shana and I had last week uh, on the podcast where we mentioned you. We we're talking about boundaries and this purveyors of half-truths I'm so guilty of in many ways that is really humbling to look at. You know, growing up in the South as a white woman, I was taught to be pleasing. 
And growing up in a family that had trauma, I was taught to just learn how to harmonize. And so when it comes to setting my boundaries or speaking a hard truth, I can compromise with myself, gaslight the full boundary and kind of go to a place that I think is um, not going to ruffle feathers. And so in a way, I'm a purveyor of a half truth in that moment. I'm not standing in my full truth. And I can fool myself in thinking that that is something that I'm doing for others, that I'm being caring and compassionate for others when actually it's just not trusting um, in the truth and standing and sitting and being in the impact of the truth, my truth. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I think all of our jobs, in in a time where we can hear about your truth and my truth and the other person's truth, we can start to believe that there's no real truth with a capital T. But I think, I, I think what it call it's calling for all of us is to live the yes and the both and. So our jobs and growing our capacity to be with the complexity that the world asks of us is how can you include as many truths in your assessment of what is true as possible? So it's growing your own capacity. So that's not just my truth. It's not just even my truth and your truth. It's my truth, your truth, their truth, this person's truth. You know, how can I grow my capacity to include as many of those pieces of the puzzle in my assessment of what is true? Because often what we do, we'll say, no, I don't believe this and you believe this. So either you're right or I'm right. Instead of what if we each are just carrying a piece of it? And I think that's what it's it's asking of us is grow yourself so you can carry as many more and more pieces of the truth and your assessment of what is true. I like that framework because I think a trick of mine and maybe empathic women in general can be like, oh, this is my truth, but I can feel what they're holding, what their truth is. So does that mean that my truth isn't true? And do I need to do a lot of work to try to find some kind of middle truth? But like, allowing my truth to be my truth as a piece of the the, the capital T truth yes. and to allow the paradox to be and like to f- almost train the nervous system yes. to be okay in the paradox. Yes. Cause spirit lives in the paradox. Spirit is mm-hmm. all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that we ever, any of us could ever hold all of it except for in the great surrender in those moments when you really are, have surrendered to spirit and you're in the flow, you can feel a space of awe, even though you don't have language for it, of course, because that's why we go into metaphor. It was like, because it's too much for the human self to hold. So I'm curious, as we do the healing work and come together in community and hold these collective spaces for us to process these things, how do we manage that aspect while also having to take care of ourselves and like produce skillful action in the world or just action and yeah really like serve our purpose like how do those things how do those things come together I think some of it is patience and kindness with ourselves and with each other 
You know, I think some of it is we're moving so we're so freaking busy doing everything under the sun that we don't have time to heal. You know, the fact I was so blessed and grateful that not only did I have the past two months where I really could couch bond for three weeks if I needed to, but I knew enough to do it. I knew enough to not fill that space then with busyness. And so part of it is knowing that that busyness is a form of violence. It is a form of the what's right, real, and true. And that we get to be us. You know, we have this story, I think, too, that's part of part of the whiteness story about being deserving or not being deserving. And I think we need to take that out of our vocabulary. I think we, you know, just by being human, like there's certain things that you that are your birthright that we don't seem to really be in or or acknowledge or it's like we have to earn it. Even I think it's hilarious, even Christian folks that I know that like, you know, I would say if you really believe that Jesus died for you so you could have life, then why are you still trying to earn it? You know, so we say one thing, but we live another and how to bring together that. Yeah. So for our last question, Juanita, we ask you to assume the position to channel the great mother, <laughs> to really connect with the soul of our earth and the soul of the feminine and share a message for all of us to receive today. It's interesting because it just jumped forward really quick as you started speaking. And it's that, that we all come from the same place. We all come from the collective. We're birthed from the collective. And when we really get that, when we get that we're birthed from the collective and we return to the collective, you can never not belong. And when you really get that you come in belonging, that changes everything. It changes when you're in a room knowing that there's only, there's something that only you uniquely can bring into that room. You're needed. And so your job is to show up. When you know that you belong, you also know that other people belong. And so we then can move into a different place of being witnessed and witnessing each other. And that's so much of what each of us are waiting for. We all just want to be seen and heard and welcomed. And it starts with us first. Thank you, Juanita, for being here and for showing up in your full presence. It is such a profound gift to share space with you. Thank you for the invitation. What a blessing to be here with you, too. You know, you said in the beginning about your love for me. I just love what you all are doing and what you're channeling in. And some of it for me is the proof is in the pudding, right? <laughs> like it's like it's not just marketing. It's that you all, the presence that you show up with and that you invite people into is felt. And I can see you. So thank you. And... We're all going to see each other in May for my wedding. Yeah. <laughs> we can all do a group hug. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yes. This is just like the beauty, the beauty of the sisterhood unfolding. Thank it's just constantly just more beauty. Yes. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who are on this journey with us, this journey of 
the Interground Railroad. And if you would like to deepen this journey and have some guiding and accountability, I highly suggest going to... Right now it's on my website. We're working on getting it um, put into books, but they can go to our website, which is www.nzuzu.com. I highly suggest grabbing this book. I have it by my bedside table. Juanita, is there ever going to be an opportunity to be guided through this work with you? Yes. So in June, and you'll find this on the website too, um, Amy and I are co-hosting a retreat. It's a Wednesday evening through Sunday afternoon where we're taking you on your own journey of the Interground Railroad. It's the first one that we're co-hosting together. She is uh, currently hosting a 40-day Lent journey for this book. And she has, I think this is her third year doing that. So, you know, she's been working with it and we've made the decision to do one in person in June. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to have you join us. Okay. Well, we'll include that website in the show notes. Thank you so much again, all of you who are here with us in the time of the feminine learning and growing and, and sharing space together. We love you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us since for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way. Thank you.